Hello and welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast where we hold candid conversations on creativity, books, well-being and everything in between. I'm your host Miranda Mills, a lifestyle blogger and teacher living in London and today I'm joined by the London-based writer Imogen Hermes Gower to discuss her incredible debut novel The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock. Imogen's book has garnered a huge amount of attention and fantastic reviews already and it's easy to see why her masterful storytelling has led to such rapid success. Set in Georgian London, The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock tells a captivating story of how a strange curiosity, said to be a mermaid, brings together the lives of Mr Hancock, a widowed merchant and shipowner, and a beautiful, if slightly ageing, London courtesan, Angelica Neal. In our chat together, Imogen tells me about how a real curiosity in the British Museum first sparked the idea for her debut novel, and how she set about researching 18th century London to bring her book so vividly to life. We also chat about what the lives of women in the past can teach us about what it means to be a woman in the present. This is a fantastic listen for anyone interested in historical fiction or even just a great story. Let's get started with the show. Hello, Imogen. Thank you so much for being on Tea and Tattle podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I mean, I absolutely loved your wonderful debut novel, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. So I'm really very excited to be chatting with you about your book today. But to start off, would you just tell me a little bit about yourself and how your passion for history and literature first began? They've always almost been hand in hand for me that I've always loved history and always been incredibly interested kind of from childhood in finding out about people who lived a long time ago and trying to understand their lives and what would be different for them. And I think for as long as I have been writing, I've been trying to write stories about people often in the past. I think I've always been interested in kind of imaginatively putting myself in someone else's shoes and trying to capture the texture of lives that are different from my own that don't exist anymore. Um, It certainly always felt like kind of two sides of a coin to, I guess, bring some kind of empathy and texture to history mm-hmm. and my interactions with it. Um, yeah, so writing's always been part of my life, but I never felt that it was something... I think quite a lot of writers push writing to the bottom of the to-do pile and feel kind of guilty mm-hmm. about doing it, that it's, you know, it's a hobby and it has no necessary... It doesn't necessarily have a set outcome and it feels quite selfish to do something that's so enjoyable but possibly so unproductive so I kind of always thought that history would be my job and writing would be a passion that I kind of had on the side. Yes so how then did you first start writing fiction properly? I mean I read that you used to work in museums and you'd you would sometimes start writing stories based on the artifacts surrounding you. It, was that your way into writing properly? It was my way into writing as an adult. 
I was working at the British Museum at that point and I just moved to London from Norwich where I'd done my degree and where I'd previously been working in museums. And it was quite a hard time for me, I think, that I'd graduated kind of into a credit crunch and there weren't really very many museum jobs around and it was quite... I think a lot of people were quite disheartened and dispirited and... Mm. I think I just at that point really needed something that was mine that I was good at and took pleasure from and writing fiction was that so quite often when I was in the galleries I would start looking at the objects and trying to you know trying to place them in a previous context or try to draw out what stories I could find from them Um, and that really varied from one to the next sometimes it would be very literally about the object and sometimes it would be the kind of person I could imagine owning it or the feeling that I got from it and trying to put that into a story. It was really a kind of challenge to myself. And at that period, I just started, I also started doing a creative writing evening course, just a short course. Um, So this was kind of just part of me giving myself a kick up the bum and getting myself to write constantly and to think in a creative way as often as possible, as much as possible. Yeah, oh, I think that sounds like such an interesting and valuable writing practice. And I wondered, I mean, mermaids play such an important role in mm. your book. So was it a real curiosity that maybe was a bit like the sort of rather hideous mermaid um, infant in the story? Um, but was was that a real thing that you saw that inspired your book at all it was yes so this was there is a mermaid in the British Museum um which I'd been going to look at for a long time before I decided to write a story about it it is it was made probably in the 18th century and it's part of this tradition of what's called Fiji mermaids that were made usually in Japan were seen by Dutch sailors who thought oh my God, it's a mermaid, um, and would then bring them back to Europe and display them. What they usually are are kind of composites of very often like a monkey's body stitched onto a fish's tail or several different bits of animal assembled together to make this kind of, this very small, very creepy, quite frightening, mummified little kind of water sprite thing. And I think quite a lot of um, little regional museums you know, that that still have that kind of curiosity element to them, they will often have fake mermaids still. Um, And this one in the British Museum was, um, I was kind of drawn to it because of its absolute creepiness and the way that it's nothing like you imagine a mermaid and yet is somehow very powerful in itself, that it's so ugly you could kind of believe it was real. Um, And I was looking at that and I thought, who would own it? Why would Hmm. he want it? And the characters, my main characters, Jonah Hancock and Angelica Neal, kind of just fell into my head almost immediately. I could see the story that I wanted to tell and the plot of the story and the the kind of voice that I wanted to achieve almost immediately. Um, But I, yeah, I didn't write the novel for quite a few years after that. Oh, that's amazing, though. And yes, I think it's so interesting um, how in the book, too, you show that something you expect to be beautiful, Mm. like a mermaid, when it's actually presented as 
quite hideous and, uh, and frightening even it somehow makes it almost more believable yeah I think that pow- that recoil is what makes it kind of compelling that it's horrible and my actually my editor then took her small son to have a look at it and he she said that he couldn't stop talking about it afterwards like he was obviously turning over in his head and trying to make sense of it and was very compelled by it in this scary way yeah well there are so many more questions I want to ask about your novel but before we discuss it further would you mind reading a short extract from it absolutely yes so we're gonna go from the beginning volume one chapter one jonah hancock's counting house is built wedge-shaped and coffered like a ship's cabin whitewashed walls and black skirting beam pegged snugly to beam the wind sings down union street raindrops burst against the window and mr hancock leans forward on his elbows cradling his brow in his hands Rasping his fingers over his scalp, he discovers a crest of coarse hair the barber has missed and idles over it with mild curiosity, but no irritation. In private, Mr Hancock is not much concerned with his appearance. In society, he wears a wig. He is a portly gentleman of 45, dressed in worsted and fustian and linen, honest familiar textures to match his threadbare scalp, the silverish fuzz of his jowls, the scuffed and stained skin of his fingertips. He is not a handsome man, nor ever was one, and as he perches on his stool, his great belly and skinny legs give him the look of a rat up a post. But his meaty face is amiable, and his small eyes with their pale lashes are clear and trusting. He is a man well designed for his station in the world, a merchant's son of a merchant's son, a son of Deptford, whose place is not to express surprise or delight at the rare things that pass through his rough hands, but only to assess their worth, scratch down their names and numbers, and send them on to the bright and exuberant city across the river. The ships he sends out into the world, the Eagle, the Calliope, the Lorenzo, cross and recross the globe, but Jonah Hancock himself, the stillest of men, falls asleep each night in the room in which he first drew breath. The light in the office has a murky cast to it, full of storms. The rain comes down in sheets. Mr Hancock's ledgers are spread out before him, creeping with insect words and figures, but his mind is not on his work, and he's grateful for the distraction of a scuffling outside the office. Ah, thinks Mr Hancock, that will be Henry. But when he turns around from his desk, it is only the cat. She is almost upside down at the foot of the stairs with her rear in the air, her hind paws splayed wide on the bottom step and her forepaws pinning a squirming mouse to the hall floorboards. Her little mouth is open, teeth flashing in triumph, but her position is precarious. To right herself, he calculates, she must let go of her quarry. Whisht, says Mr Hancock, be gone. But she catches the mouse up in her jaws and prances across the hall. She's out of his sight, but he hears the thrum of her dancing paws and the dampish thud of the mouse's body hitting the floorboards as she flips it into the air again and again. He has watched her play this game many times and always finds her inquiring, open-throated cry unpleasantly human. He turns back to his desk, shaking his head. He could have sworn it was Henry coming down the stairs. In his mind's eye, the scene had already taken place. His tall, thin son with white stockings and brown curls pausing to grin into the office while all about him the dust motes sparkle. Such visions do not come to him very often, but when they do, they always disturb him, for Henry Hancock died at birth. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. Um, That was wonderful. And yeah, I love that opening scene it just draws you into the novel straight away and also the sort of contrast to Mr Hancock's 
life before the mermaid arrives and his life just completely changes and it's so different by the end of the book I think that's brilliant oh thank you excellent I really like that scene too still one of my favorite things from reading your book was that it truly brought the Georgian era and particularly the Soho of the 18th century alive to me Mm. and I could just so clearly visualize the sights and smells and sounds of Dean Street in London at that time. So I wondered would you tell me a bit about your research process and what resources you found particularly useful in bringing that period of London to life? Yeah I spent a lot of time in the British Library and I read some contemporary novels but a lot of the contemporary writing that I was reading was non-fiction it was a lot of pamphlets and magazines and kind of more transient things that gave you this idea of the trends that people were following and the turns of phrase people used and the you know the kind of general broader social opinions on things um one of the things I really enjoyed reading was um there are these court transcripts that you can get hold of um which some enterprising person would go and sit in trials and transcribe all of the dialogue and then would publish it for kind of alleged um, Mm. public interest reasons. Um, And they're very often like really petty crimes, like someone's stolen some stays from a washing line, or there's a discussion about whether someone left the window open so a burglar could get in, or whether it was locked and he's broken it, like all this kind of small scale things, but it gives you such a sense of the way that real people were actually speaking and the turns of phrase they were really using, and their morality. I found that incredibly useful as this kind of snapshot into real people's lives, and I tried to refer to that as much as possible just to keep that voice in my head. Um, I come from, obviously, so I studied art history at university. That was part of my yeah. degree, and I was always, I guess, was always taught to use visual and physical records rather than necessarily written things so I looked at dress a lot at the clothes that women would have worn and how they would have felt to wear how it would how wearing stays might make you feel and the weight of petticoats or not um whether you could dress yourself and have that independence and this idea of Mm -hmm. kind of having loads and loads of pins holding your clothes together really interested me. I really tried to understand the physical side of, especially the women's world, through their clothing, because I think a lot of women, I guess, define themselves and invent themselves through what they wear. Yeah, well, there's a great scene in the book. I mean, all your descriptions of clothing in the book are wonderful, but I love the scene where Angelica Neal um, is, she has to dress herself. She gets into a situation where she has to dress herself. And you don't always think like, oh yes, in those days, that would have been such a difficult thing to do. Like you really did need help. Yeah, it's really interesting. And there's loads of kind of little asides in contemporary texts that are not important, but things like men helping their wives do their stays up and things like that, that actually you'd never think about. Is that difficult to do by yourself? How quickly can you get dressed in the morning? And like how, I suppose, how risque would it be to be seen without them? 
Mm. Um, and I also, yeah, I really, really tried to experience a lot of my research physically. So if I'd looked at maps, I would always then go to the place and try and walk it and see if the mm -hmm. footprint of the street was still the same and then what it's like to be there. I think you miss so much just by looking and reading, you know, looking at maps and reading descriptions. You need to go there and feel it. I mean, a lot of that information doesn't go into the text, but I feel like it gave me a confidence that maybe translates to the reader. Yes, oh, absolutely. And I've seen a video that you've done on YouTube, which is a sort of tour of Georgian mm. London, which I thought was fantastic. You, know, you walk around and you speak about what London would have looked like at the time of your novel. So I'll, I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes oh, as well so yes, that I'm people really can watch that because, yeah, I found that so interesting. But, yes, I loved all those little details that you put into the novel that just really fleshed out that era for me. I mean, even down to small examples, like was it – the Pedita dresses that were especially sort of clinging and almost transparent even, like very risque. Yeah, I think later in the century they would spritz them with water so they would kind of cling to your body even more and it was like really risque. <laughs> but I, I actually did make one of those gowns and, and I, I sew quite a lot of my own kind of modern clothes. This was the first time I'd ever made, tried to make something historical. But I was actually, when I was sewing it, I was kind of, shocked by it that it's really just you have loads and loads of muslin mm. so you've I suppose a bit of an outlay on the amount of fabric you're using but then it's just like drawstrings there's no structure to it and it I think for me as a modern person it felt bizarre to be sewing something with so little structure yes and I could it helped me imagine that for someone in the 18th century it must feel amazing like so freeing and so kind of daring that you're wearing something that you've kind of moulded to your body in that I, I can't really explain it. Like just the freeness of it was weird. Yeah. And I didn't really, I didn't, I never thought it would affect me that way. But um, I did, it did make me reconsider everything that I understood about that fashion. Yes, because yes, you might not really realise that women were wearing mm. clothes like that. But as well as your descriptions of the fashion of the time, I also absolutely loved what you wrote about the food, um, especially the sort of dainty jellies and all those lavish treats that Angelica mm. loves so much. Um, did you ever attempt to replicate any of the recipes for yourself to try? I did. I made a few. So I, the things that Angelica likes to eat, um bane bread it's quite a lot like um it's quite like biscotti that they're very hard double baked biscuits and they're designed yeah. for you to eat them kind of softened with a bit of madeira or something but they're very they're hard on the teeth um they were the kind of snack that would be passed around 18th century drawing rooms and i also made something i think it described itself as the orangiest tart it was like it was a lovely Georgian recipe and it seemed so excited about the fact that it included fresh oranges in this kind of custard tart that which was really nice um I also read a man called Frederick Nutt he published a recipe book and he had worked at a place called Negri's which in is actually in the book I don't think I've named it in the book um but that it was a confectioner's that sold 
ice cream and sweets and mm. all kinds of candy fruit and things like that um, and these jellies so I, I tried some of his recipes as well because that is like you know this authentic 18th century luxury and some of his ideas they seem quite kind of Heston now I think there's so he suggests that you might want to make I think it was a parmesan ice cream oh. um, or ice creams that are flavoured with herbs like sage and thyme and things like that that I think now seems quite wild but then I think well you know why not yeah. um, I really enjoyed the the food element of it and I was very interested in the things that were really associated with prostitutes so something like ratafia this um very sweet liqueur that was traditionally I think made with almonds and now it was made with many different kinds of fruit was really associated with prostitution um, and so were things like jellies the kind of things that you have at parties like they had a really kind of childish sweet tooth yeah. and I suppose those things were quite luxurious at the time there was this excitement of having something that was made with so much sugar that's so labour intensive um, but it's also kind of very light. Like I can imagine young girls could keep going all evening on just, you know, lemonade and spirits and jellies. It, it sounds kind of childish and partyish, but it's the kind of thing where you could dance all night on that and not really, you know, struggle. That's true. You'd <laughs> yeah. have a real sugar high, yeah, wouldn't I you? I like the idea of everyone being on this, all these girls being on a huge sugar high all the time. Yes. Well, I mean, your research is clearly meticulous, which made me wonder, were any of the celebrity courtesans that you depicted in your book, were any of them inspired by real life women in history? They were. I think reading the biographies and memoirs of women who were really there in that world at the period was really important for me. Mm -hmm. And as much as possible to see it from their point of view, um, lots of courtesans kind of stashed away their memoirs as a kind of it was something to fall back on when they reached middle age and maybe weren't able to support themselves with men wanting their favours anymore there was always the threat of a, being able to publish a, a tell-on um, I think a bit later the phrase publish and be damned comes from there was a courtesan called Harriet Wilson who at the end of each of her memoirs would write this list of all the men who might be appearing in the next one so they could bribe her to not include them. Um, mm. And um, when she approached the Duke of Wellington saying she was going to write this tell-all about her sexual relationship with him, his response allegedly was publish and be damned. <laughs> um, so there is, I think these women were definitely writing their memoirs for scandal and to appeal to a wider audience, they needed them to sell because that was like their nest egg. Um, but they are also really fascinating and often funny um, and moving. So um, I read a woman called Peg Plunkett wrote a very useful memoir. She ended up being a board. She started out as um, a mistress in Ireland and ended up running her own house of ill repute. And her record of how this came about for her and her um, her attitude towards it was really, really useful for me, um, mm. just in general and in kind of fleshing out how someone like Mrs. Chapel, who is the owner of a very high-class brothel in the novel, how she might have thought about her work. Um, Mrs. Chapel is also based on, there were several very high-class, what were called abbesses, they were madams, mm. um, during this period, who 
perfected the art of this new, very classy prostitution that was appealing to upper-class men. Um, I think it was Charlotte Hayes who she patented her bed springs um, in her house. Oh, yes. Um, That's a little detail in your book. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when she eventually closed, closed, there was this mad scramble to acquire these famous beds. Um, and the details of their lives I found really, really useful. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of these women um, were almost sort of celebrity figures. Do you think celebrity culture is so very different now? I mean, are there similarities to the way that people would gossip about those who were wealthy or beautiful, even in Georgian times? I think the Georgian era was kind of the start of celebrity culture as we know it now, that suddenly there were hundreds of print shops in London it was quite a concentrated space. So it was easier and easier firstly to publish like your little hot take and then to distribute it, that gossip could travel fast across London with this new print culture that was increasingly efficient in just turning out, you know, you could have things printed by the evening if you wanted. Mm. Um, And print shops would have their specific cartoonists who would produce work for them that they could put up in the window and people would come and look at it. And I think, yeah, this idea of celebrity suddenly became possible, whereas in the olden days, before this period, if your image was reproduced in public, it would probably be because you were aristocratic or influential, that, you know, there might be a portrait hanging somewhere um, or in the front of a book, or it would be the great and the good whose images were known and were passed around. Um, Mm. And this... But it kind of changed during the 18th century where suddenly you could make pictures of actresses and courtesans and pass them around and their faces would be known without them ever being seen. This kind of, that their reputation would precede them. And magazines would run gossip about them all the time. There's, um, in the novel, I've mentioned something called Tete Tete, which um, was a real series that ran in an 18th century magazine. And each week it would portray a rumoured celebrity couple with kind of very thinly veiled identities, um, including these details about their alleged affair. And often they were kind of, they're still something that biographers use as a kind of way in to that kind of sexual social circle. Um, And there were even quite respectable women's magazines that would have kind of charts of celebrity women and rating them on certain points, like niceness (laughs) and attractiveness and stuff. Like, I think there was that kind of bitchy circle of shame, judgy celebrity culture that we have now definitely existed in the 18th century. And it was definitely this period where people started to consume on a mass level the images of strangers that they'd never seen, but they'd heard about. Yes, and they also started copying like dress and things like yeah, that as well. Yeah, exactly. That that people could, could set trends. Yeah, and this that's how um, the chemise à la reine, the perdita gown, kind of gained popularity was by people like Mary Robinson wearing it and other women either seeing her in the flesh or seeing portrayals of her wearing it and thinking, I want that fashion too for me that it wasn't Mm. so much a trickle-down effect from the Queen of France, it was that influential mistresses had already adopted it and people wanted to look like them. 
Mm. Yeah, it's just so fascinating. But I wanted to ask you as well um, about an interview you gave in which you said the best historical fiction says something about the present, um, which I think is so true. And I wondered, did examining the role of women in Georgian society teach you anything about what it means to be a woman and the challenges that we face today? It did. It felt really important while I was writing it to reflect on how fortunate we are as women now to have so many more choices that I think Mm. I was really struck while I was researching by how many especially Georgian mistresses are kind of portrayed kind of as floozies like if we remember people like Emma Hamilton we remember them as seductresses and a kind of a bit of stuff rather than that Emma Hamilton was an incredibly determined and intelligent woman who made the best of the situation she was in at the time. I think it's very easy to, I think it's very easy to dismiss those women before you start to understand the world that they were born into. Um, And I think that still kind of repeats itself now that women are becoming more and more vocal about, about the fact that they don't want to be objectified anymore. They don't, feel that they want to give men positive attention all the time. I think there's an expectation still among men that women are there to please them and maybe to appease them. And I I think women seem less and less willing to put up with that. But that's been such a slow kind of snowballing since the 18th century, that, that these tiny incremental steps towards trying to be human Actually, I think each generation only covers a very small amount of ground. But being able to look at where I am now and what I'm capable, what I'm allowed to do in society versus what my options might have been in the 18th century, it's quite bleak. Like, I can't guarantee that I would have been happy or that I would have made ethical decisions according to my own judgment now because I'd have been trying to just get on in a world that wasn't really built for women. Yes, just just survive, really. Yeah, exactly. Well, there seems to be a real new wave of fiction that sort of fleshes out the voices and lives of women from the past. And I noticed that your book was already being compared to ones like The Miniaturist and The Essex Serpent, even before it was published. What did you feel about your book being labelled as a certain type of feminist historical fiction from the very start? I mean, do you think making a distinction of feminist historical fiction in that way is necessary or useful? I'm glad that the book is being read in a feminist manner. I think that's really important. Mm. But I don't know if I don't feel like there should be a different category for this for maybe a feminist reading of history. I think the world's just gently moving in that direction. I think we're much more willing to accept that capable and interesting women did exist in the past. They didn't enjoy the same opportunities that their contemporaries did Mm -hmm. and that maybe they weren't household names. But I think we are much more and more open to looking for the women behind well-known men or the, the people in the shadows at decisive historical moments. I think... Mm-hmm. We are so much less willing to accept now that the past is a place only populated by men and that there's a kind of, that women, especially nowadays, and 
all sorts of minorities look at that picture of the past and think, no, we were there too. It, it's not unrealistic to choose mm. a female protagonist or to put a black free person in 18th century London because they were there. They just weren't considered to be part of the fabric of important history up to this point. I, I just, I think we are much more open to stories that history was not necessarily, that official history didn't necessarily reflect in the past. Yes. Well, I think you're such a brilliant, new, fresh voice in historical fiction. And I love the way that you write about so many different complex and really fun and interesting female characters in your book. I mean, I absolutely loved it. And it's been such a pleasure chatting with you about it more today. But just before we end this, may I ask what's next for you? Are there any upcoming events or projects that you're able to share at the moment? Yeah, I am busy. Um, So I will be at Dulwich Books on the 22nd of February, which looks like it will be really interesting. That's um, a conversation especially about... um, the history of emotions in the 18th century. I'm really excited oh, wow. about going to that one. I think it will have a kind of academic historical element to it that I'm really interested in. Oh. Um, I'll be in a book club at the Groucho Club on the 28th of February um, and then in Cambridge at Heffers for a amazing looking historical fiction event um, with Beth Underdown and Laura Carlin, um, both of whose books are incredible. So I'm really excited to be in dialogue with them about women, you know, women writing historical fiction mm. in the 21st century. That is exciting. Oh, um, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, I've got stacks I could go on and on. <laughs> I've well, got, yeah, loads of book festivals coming up and that kind of thing. It's really exciting. Oh, I'm sure. So if people would like to sort of keep up with your news and, and what upcoming events you have, um, where can they find you online? Um, I think the best is always on Twitter. Um, and my handle is Girl Hermes. Um, I'm also building a new website. So my blog is up at the moment, um, but I will also be at imogenhermesgower.com as well. And that's probably in, um, will be the best place to find all the information about the events that I'm doing and the things that I'm planning. Fantastic. Well, I'll be sure to link to your social media links and also to some of those upcoming events that you mentioned. So listeners can check those out in the show notes. But thank you so much again, Imogen, for coming on Tea and Cattle. Oh, that's a pleasure. And that's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thank you so much again to Imogen for her wonderful interview. For the show notes, extra links and photos, check out the corresponding blog post at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 63. Do get in touch and tell me what you enjoyed most about this episode and whether you're eager to read The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. You can contact me on Instagram at both Miranda's Notebook and Miranda's Bookcase or you can email me at teaandtattlepodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you shared it with a friend who you think would like it too, or leave a review on iTunes. Reviews really help other people to find the show, and I so appreciate them. You can also sign up to receive the Tea and Tattle newsletter and latest episodes at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. 
Thanks so much as always for listening and be sure to tune in again on Friday for the latest mini Tea Reads episode. And then next Tuesday I'm back chatting with my co-host Sophie about the Japanese philosophy of Ikigai and the importance of finding your purpose in life. Until then, keep well, be joyful and stay in touch.